Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Arnold Thackeray will join us to discuss Gordon Moore. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, the history of Silicon Valley and the revolutionaries who changed our modern world would not be complete without a substantial section dedicated to Gordon Moore. But few outside of the tech world may have heard of him or his eponymously named Law. Well, joining us to provide insight into the life and times of Gordon Moore is Professor Arnold Thackeray. Professor Thackeray founded the Chemical Heritage Foundation and served as the organization's president for 25 years. He is currently the organization's chancellor. He received his master's and PhD degrees from Cambridge University University and has held appointments at Cambridge, Oxford, and Harvard, the Institute for Advanced Studies, Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, and Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has served for more than a quarter century as uh, on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania, where he's founding chairman of the Department of History and Social Sciences, the so- Sociology of Sciences, and is currently the Joseph Priestley Professor Emeritus. He has uh, written the new book, Moore's Law, with his colleagues David Brock and Rachel Jones, Moore's Law, The Life of Gordon Moore, Silicon Valley's Quiet Revolutionary, and he joins us today to discuss the life and times of Gordon Moore. And Professor Factory. I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're very welcome. I appreciate it. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and uh, this is really a fascinating book, Moore's Law, that you've written about the life of, of Gordon Moore. Gordon Moore's Silicon Valley Quiet Revolutionary, and indeed uh, quite a quiet revolutionary compared to some of his colleagues at the time. How did you become interested in Gordon Moore's life, and why did you decide to write a book about it? I'm a historian of the chemical and molecular sciences and technologies. And when you think about chemistry and chemical engineering and the 20th century, you can think of Nobel laureates, uh, and you can also cast a wider net and say, who else has changed the world? And there's no question that Gordon Moore, who's a PhD chemist, has probably done more to change the world than any other single chemist of the last half century. Seems a no-brainer. Seems a no-brainer to be interested in. Who is he? What did he do? And, and indeed, he pretty much been the, the revolutionary that's changed most of the modern world. But it's and it's surprising out there that few may actually know his name offhand. Yes. Well, he is very uncharacteristic of Silicon Valley. However, you look at it, uh, he is extremely uncharacteristic in the fact that he's a fifth-generation native of that area. And most people in Silicon Valley have now arrived from somewhere else. Gordon Moore truly knew where he was because his family had been there since before the gold rush. So that was one unusual thing. The second unusual thing is that he's very quiet and modest in his approach. And so he's never been one to go out and advertise himself and aggrandize himself. Uh, The third thing that's unusual is he truly was the man who was there before it all began 
and stayed with the program for more than half a century. He was there before it began in the simple sense that he was one of the very tiny group of individuals who first tried to make a silicon transistor in what would, would become Silicon Valley. So he is central to the place getting its name. But he's very uncharacteristic when you think about the sort of people you expect to encounter in Silicon Valley. And, and how much of these factors, in particular his being sort of native to California, do you think led to his emergence or, or his ability to kind of transform technology or the, or the industry at the time? I think his sense of self, his settled sense of self, was absolutely crucial to what he did. Because when you say, well, what did he do? He was there as possibly the central player in the group that first made a silicon transistor as a commercially viable thing. And then he just stayed with it, making ever smaller, ever better, ever cheaper transistors for more than 50 years. He's probably best known uh, as the co-founder of Intel. And if you ask what is Intel, it is the company that makes the smallest, fastest transistors. It always has been, and that has been the driver of all other things electronic. So his focus, his consistency, his ability to stay with that program for a very long time was something very unusual, and I think was deeply connected to the sort of person he was and his secure sense of self. So in a sense, because he was so grounded in the place, there was not really a wanderlust for once he'd achieved whatever he had achieved to move on to something else. It was really to improve and have sort of a long-lasting contribution. Yes, and he's always seen things very, very clearly. Uh, it's, it's interesting that um, since he was, he was living in that area, his family was living in that area, they were backwoodsmen. I mean, the area was the backwoods. He was actually born and, and grew to the age of 10 in a little uh, village these days called Pescadero. Some people may know, six miles from the Pacific coast, uh, truly in the backwoods. And his family was very locally grounded. Um, it's ironic that given that Moore's Law is what he's mainly known for, but his family actually uh, was quite involved in law enforcement as a function of having been early settlers. And his father, who began as a part-time constable in that area, uh, patrolling huge areas on horseback, eventually was promoted to a full-time job in Redwood City, uh, Redwood City is on the edge of what is now Silicon Valley. And um, there, Gordon Moore encountered the California high school system and the California college system right at the moment that it was entering its first full great flowering. So he was the first person in his family to uh, think of going to college in his immediate nuclear family. Uh, he was a day commuter 
to San Jose State. He was a transfer student to Berkeley for his junior year, uh, and then he was to Caltech and got a PhD from Caltech, and then in a certain sense there was no stopping him. So he was very much uh, a beneficiary of that heroic age immediately after World War II. He got into chemistry, and this tells you something about the place and the age, by picking up secondhand books from uh, used bookstores in the local area, having a next-door neighbor's child who had a chemistry set, and discovering for himself how to make TNT, uh, how to make nitroglycerine. And he was a very inexpressive child verbally, but he discovered that if he made an explosion, he really got people's attention. And in those days, you could just send away for any chemicals you wanted and make any sort of explosive you wanted. And he became hooked on chemistry, and out of that, everything would flow. So 2020 hindsight, it's it's a marvelous story of practical ingenuity of one of one boy, the boy chemist, and then what Caltech can do for you. And um, then he had the the great problem of um, gee, I have a PhD in chemistry. I'm in California. It's the early 1950s. California is still far away, and there's no particular demand for PhD chemists in California. So he ends up uh, reluctantly going to uh, the Washington, D.C. area to the applied physics lab that Johns Hopkins ran for the Navy. These were the years of the Cold War, and the story and the story of the origins of Silicon Valley is deeply intertwined with the Cold War because it was the the armed forces that were just desperate for the latest technology uh, for the Cold War. And so he's in Washington, D.C., and not enjoying it at all. And uh, he's married a local girl he's met in college in California, somebody as deeply locally rooted as he was, and they're finding the East hot, humid, Washington, D.C. segregated, they're really not enjoying it. And then one day, he's, just when he gets home after work, he, he gets a, a call, a phone rings, and it's a cold call from someone saying, would he be interested in a job as a chemist in Mountain View, California? I think he was the only Ph.D. chemist in the country who knew where Mountain View, California was because it was 10 miles from Redwood City where he grew up and 10 miles from where his wife grew up in the other direction. And to be offered a job back close to their families was a miracle. So he uh, immediately went out and the person offering the job was William Shockley, a co-inventor of the transistor who had set up a tiny little startup uh, to try and make silicon transistors and uh, as a commercial operation to make himself some money. And the reason he was in 
the West was a very strange one because all of the electronics industry was either on the East Coast, Bell Labs in New Jersey, uh, Philco, RCA. It was either on the East Coast or maybe in Texas with Texas Instruments. But what we now call Silicon Valley was nowheresville. It was full of fruit farms, full of fruit farms. But um, Shockley uh, was too close to his mother for comfort. Uh, but he wanted to live on his mother's doorstep, and his mother had gone to Palo Alto because the climate was pleasant. So next door to Palo Alto is Mountain View, and that's where Shockley's semiconductor was, and that's where Gordon Moore went. That's where they made the silicon transistor, and that's what became Silicon Valley. But eventually, uh, the, the conditions at Shockley Semiconductor weren't quite what some of the engineers and scientists there had hoped, and so several of them left, and in, in particular, uh, Gordon Moore, who went off and started his own company. Yes, unfortunately, uh, William Shockley was a genius, but a genius who fulfills the stereotype of the mad genius he was impossible to work for. And so this little group of young men, they were all in their late 20s, all new PhDs, all very talented, found that their boss was impossible, um, and they tried to do something about it and failed and realized that they had no option but to, to leave themselves. But by then, they really wanted to make a silicon transistor. They'd become fascinated with the problem. And they had the idea of offering themselves to uh, industrial corporations as a group because uh, transistors up to that moment had been made of germanium, a similar element in the periodic table, but people had realized that silicon was probably better, so the race was on to make a silicon transistor. They wanted to be the first to do it. They thought they could sell themselves to some company, and they, uh, in a very straightforward way, they looked at the New York Times, they looked at the Wall Street Journal, and they wrote to 33 companies saying, wouldn't you like to have a group of people who can make a silicon transistor? And uh, 33 companies said, you must be joking. Why would we be interested? Um, and every one of them passed it up. And then they got lucky by happenstance and interested Sherman Fairchild. Sherman Fairchild, who was on Long Island, uh, had two attributes. One, he was the guy behind uh, uh, cameras in spy planes and Cold War stuff. He knew all about Cold War stuff. And two, he was the largest single shareholder in IBM and the chair of its board. And he was aware that the silicon transistor was happening. So he said, okay, I'll fund it, but uh, I'm going to have the right to buy it um, if it succeeds. And he succeeded almost instantly. And then he bought it, and then they were salaried employees of a of a firm on Long Island. But they had made silicon transistors. Silicon transistors were primarily used in the Cold War, and there's a wonderful example of the need that Fairchild's semiconductor began in the week that Sputnik went up. And what 
wasn't advertised at the time, but was well known in Washington, is the reason to be concerned about Sputnik was that the rocket that carried it was the rocket the Russians were planning to use to drop an H-bomb on New York when the moment arose. And the fact that Sputnik worked showed that they could do it, and we had no means of dropping an H-bomb on Moscow. And it was in the context of trying to devise reliable means to drop an H-bomb on Moscow that the first order was placed for silicon transistors. So if you want to trace uh, where uh, our modern world came from, you can argue that that was the moment that led to it all. It seems like defense and military spending in many ways has uh, led to the spin-off of all the kind of things that we, we sort of come to um, see in our modern world. Yes, indeed. And it's it's very striking how pervasive that was in the, in the first part. But, of course, other uses for silicon transistors began to be found quite rapidly. Um, the problem that the little group discovered in, uh, uh, in Mountain View, there were two problems. One is uh, Fairchild Semiconductor was so successful that uh, spin-offs began. People began walking out from Fairchild Semiconductor to found other uh, rival firms just down the road. Um, and the headquarters on Long Island was very unsympathetic and untuned to life in this little West Coast enclave. And the people in Mountain View who were making all the money felt increasingly unappreciated. So within a decade that... Um, Gordon Moore and um, his colleague Robert Noyce were getting really fed up. And Noyce, when he was passed over for head of Fairchild on Long Island, decided he was he was going to leave like so many other people had done and set up his own company. And Gordon Moore said he would go with him, and the two of them set up Intel in 1968. And Intel, uh, from day one, has made smaller, faster uh, chips, uh, sets of transistors organized to do what's, what's needed. Moore, who was so focused to the technology of how you would do this, he had already realized, just by thinking about it, by 1965, only... Um, eight years after they made the first transistors, he had realized that transistors, it was getting cheaper to make faster, smaller, faster, better transistors with cheaper than the ones they replaced, that the speed was doubling every year, and he realized there was no technical reason this shouldn't go on. And so in 1965, he wrote a paper articulating what we now call Moore's Law. And Moore's Law really has these three components. It says it's going to be better if you make them smaller. They're going to be faster if you make them smaller. 
and they're going to be cheaper if you make them smaller. And that's a remarkable combination uh, that has characterized the electronic universe. And Gordon Moore came up himself with a good analogy in a talk he gave uh, after this had been going on for about 20 years. He said, if you have come to this meeting this evening to hear this talk in your Rolls Royce, and if automobile manufacture was like transistor manufacture, you wouldn't have parked your Rolls Royce. You would just have abandoned it and got a new one at the end of the evening to go home in. It would be so cheap. And that is the, the kind of the measure of what has happened with transistors over time. And that is why electronics pervades every aspect of our life, whether you're talking medicine, whether you're talking communications, uh, whether you're talking data, everything is pervaded by transistors. It's an amazing insight that uh, he had at the time and really it showed no signs of stopping. Is, is there an actual physical limit to law or can it just go on forever? Well, this is what's very interesting because uh, we are beginning to approach the physical limit. But over the years, as it obviously gets more of a challenge to keep halving the size of transistors, they are now incredibly minute. There are billions of them in the typical cell phone. The first transistors that they were making in 1957 were each the size of your fingernail, and each of them cost at retail $150 in 1957 dollars. Uh, today, you buy, uh, you know, it's in the billions of a dollar the cost of a, of a transistor, and the size is minute. In another, and the doublings are slower because it gets so expensive to create the factories. It costs you four or five billion dollars if you want to build a new factory to make smaller and better, faster transistors. And it's going to come to an end in roughly somewhere five, 10, 15 years. Nobody knows quite when it will end because it's a question of the slowdown in doing this. But it's going to end for a very simple reason. It gets down to the size of a silicon atom, and once you get down to an atomic size, that's it. That's it. You can't do it anymore. Uh, my best analogy for this is if you think about the impact of the steam engine when it was put on iron rails. Before 1830, no one in the history of the world had ever gone faster than a horse could carry them. That was it. And you could only go as far as you could line up horses. By 1870, you could go round Europe at 100 miles an hour on the railroads. If you tried to go round Europe today, you can probably go round at 200 miles an hour. You've had a modest improvement in the last century and a half. Uh, but only an incremental improvement. Uh, transistors are like that. We've lived now for 50-plus years with Moore's Law, 
but within about a decade, it's going to come to an end, and it's very hard for us to grasp what that means about changes in the tenor of innovation going forward. So uh, what does Moore himself think about this, having coined the phrase, lived through it, uh, realized it, and now seeing it come to an end in a way? Well, he believes that, yes, it is going it is going to end. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very neat because Gordon Moore is still alive and well. He was a young man uh, when all of this started. He's now in his middle 80s. And, and Moore's law is just going to sort of span Moore's lifetime, and this quiet revolutionary surely will be the man whose name will always, in the long haul, be associated with Silicon Valley, because he's the central figure, just as when you think of the steam engine, you think of James Watt as the person who who did it. It's It's Gordon Moore who did it, but he's so... He's so quiet and, and modest, and he did at one stage become the richest man in California, but he's uh, a wonderful human being, and he's one of those very few people, a very small number of people in the world, who have actually given away already more than half of what they possess. He's not pledged to give, me, give it away. He's given it away, but he's just a... Um, a quiet, sane citizen. Uh, his children and his grandchildren live in what is now uh, Silicon Valley, and um, there they are, locally rooted, having done wonderful things. Well, I mean, he sounds like a, a remarkable man. Uh, we're, we are running um, slightly out of time. I'm just curious to close. Uh, do you think we'll ever see someone like Gordon Moore again, or do you think the, the time in which he lived is, is sort of unique and that kind of personality can't emerge or succeed in, in today's Silicon Valley? Well, I think Silicon Valley became a, a very, very different place um, over time, very different from how it was in those first beginnings. So I don't expect we'll see the likes of Gordon Moore. However, I do believe that the uh, uh, the powers of nature are such that we've barely begun to unravel them. And just as the uh, steam engine nobody would have conceptualized in the 1850s or 60s, the, uh, the automobile or the uh, the aircraft, the jet aircraft, or the other transportation means we have, I am sure that the electronic world we're familiar with today will be superseded by something equally marvelous and equally unthought of at this time. But meanwhile, we should salute Gordon Moore when we think about Silicon Valley and the electronic revolution. Indeed, indeed. And uh, certainly if uh, people would like to learn more, uh, the new book is called Moore's Law, The Life of Gordon Moore, Silicon Valley's Quiet Revolutionary. And the author is Professor Arnold Thackeray, along with uh, co-authors David Brock and Rachel Jones. Uh, Professor Thackeray, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. 
Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.